The UN Climate Conference COP26 that is taking place in Glasgow provides the perfect backdrop for this latest episode of the Agenda podcast. Many countries around the world are signing up to targets aimed at achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions, whilst the world is also in the grip of an energy crisis. We'll therefore be discussing how economics can help to address the trade-offs between the long and short-term objectives that are facing policymakers and businesses at the current time. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and welcome to the Economics of Climate Change, brought to you by Oxera. So we're recording today's show remotely and uh, joining me online, we have a number of Oxera's partners who all have expertise in climate economics, policy, regulation and market analysis. Uh, firstly, from just outside Brussels is Sir Philip Lowe. Uh, then here in the UK is Justin Christensen, Sahar Shamsi. And finally, it's a welcome back to the podcast to Dr. Luis Correa da Silva. Uh, now we're here today to talk about what are arguably uh, some of the most important issues facing governments and businesses which have consequences for the wealth and well-being of people across the world. And if ever a reminder was needed, the recent energy crisis has highlighted balancing the long-term benefits of reducing emissions against the need to mitigate the short-term costs and risks. Um, Philip, let's come to you first. I thought it would be uh, helpful if we started by you providing some context to the challenges uh, we are currently facing and why the timing of COP26 is so important. Well, thank you, Russell. If this uh, meeting is called COP26, it just reflects the fact that there have been a lot of preparatory meetings on the course towards some global commitment and national commitments to reduce CO2 emissions. The most important of these COP meetings, uh, which are organised by the UN's FCCC, I was in Paris in 2016, where countries began to realise that they had to make um, definite commitments at national level, which should feed into the global objective of um, reaching some degree of um, reduction in CO2 emissions, which would mean that the temperature of the earth would not rise as much as was expected to. Of course, as you've mentioned already, in 2021, we're facing other challenges as well as moving towards uh, CO2 emission re- reduction. The present energy crisis in Europe and elsewhere uh, illustrates that. But the major objective of this meeting is to confirm and even strengthen the commitments which uh, more than 124 countries have actually entered into. And what is the point of these targets? Well, first of all, If you set a target, you do make a commitment, political, moral, uh, to do something. And uh, once you set that target, your progress towards it can be monitored very effectively by political terms, but also from the point of view of public opinion. So we've got a process going on here where happily there is some degree of competition to be more ambitious to reach the targets which will contribute to a reduction in global warming. And of course, um, part and parcel of this discussion and debate is, well, okay, you may set a target, but uh, have you got a strategy to achieve it? And how do you implement that strategy in an effective way? This is where I think climate economics is a prism through which the logic and the rigor of strategies to reach net zero objectives can be measured. It is a very complex affair. Achieving national 
objective in terms of CO2 emissions has to be done through partnership between national governments, regional and local authorities, but also agencies. Think of the implications of um, electric vehicles in terms of uh, infrastructure for charging. Think too of the extension of public transport based on electricity, which requires um, synchronization and coordination with what governments would like uh, agencies to do. And of course, there are already 1,500 or more private corporations in the world who have also declared themselves to be on a net zero trajectory. And so <laughs> there may be public-public partnerships which are needed to get these targets achieved, but there's also private partnerships. If you are a port uh, such as the port of Rotterdam, and you want to become net zero, then you need to, to be in partnership with the local authorities concerned. If you're a port like Rotterdam and you want to be net zero, then you've got to persuade the sh shipping companies to be with you in the achievement of that objective. So we've got a coordination, a synchronization challenge here. It will rely very much on partnership, public-private, public-public, private-private. But in the end, a lot of what will be talked about in, in COP26 and beyond is how the public at large is going to take part in this move towards uh, net zero. And, and that is um, a, a big challenge. It can be done maybe by governments top down saying, you shouldn't do this anymore, you must do that. That's not going to be very popular. We've seen that in France with the Gilets Jaunes when we changed taxation in a, in a green way. You could give also incentives for people to do things like putting solar panels on roofs, but that may not be sufficient to reach a result. And you also can uh, put a price on carbon or put a tax on it to ensure that, again, the incentives are as strong as they must be in order to persuade individuals to take part in this event and not simply rely on government top-down work or indeed private corporations deciding at a, in their HQ that they're going to be net zero. So altogether, big challenge. COP26 is a huge opportunity to renew the commitments already made, to make clear what those targets are in a public way, get political commitments and get monitoring processes in, in place to ensure that the next time this committee meets, there is some credibility behind the strategies and the targets which have been established. You've mentioned a num obviously a huge number of challenges and a number of stakeholders involved. I mean, how if, if some strategies are agreed, how long would, would they take to, to implement? Well, at the moment, the governments uh, have uh, entered into commitments uh, more or less ambitious for the years 2030, 2050, and ultimately 2060. Those uh, countries who have regard the challenge of moving to net zero as uh, a much more important and much more difficult for them, such as India, China, tend towards the 2060 date in order to give themselves the time to restructure and get there. And at the same time, reconcile the CO2 emissions reduction objective with their own industrial development ambitions. And also, by the way, in many parts of the world now, concern not just about CO2 emissions, but about air pollution, which is a very strong motivation for many countries to move, for example, away from coal and towards um, 
renewables and other sources of energy which are less polluting. So yes, the credibility of strategies will depend on how detailed they are and how realistic they are about what kind of coordination, what kind of cooperation is needed between different bodies, whether the public or private. It's difficult to say at this stage which of those those strategies will be more credible than others. But uh, the more detail you go into, the more likely it is that uh, the credibility will increase. Luis, before we bring uh, Justin and, and Sahai into the discussion, uh, where does this conversation sit within the you know previous discussions that we've had on the Agenda podcast? Well, Philip was talking about strategies. How do we develop strategies to achieve the goals that we, we set out to achieve? Well, in, in previous podcasts, what we talked about is a little bit at the micro level, at the firm level. Philip talked a lot, and, and quite rightly, about COP in, in the run-up to COP26, that we're talking about national commitments, government rules, regulators, etc. But the fundamental change also needs to take place at the cooperation level. And, and a lot of what we talked about is, is the changes that need to take place at the firm level for us to deliver on the changes in society. So think about the, the role of boards. Think about the composition of boards, how they may need to change, perhaps to have much more diversity around people, skills, understanding the social, economic, the scientific characteristics of the, the, the climate challenges. Think about how boards need to embed within corporations much more of a sustainable angle to the investment decisions. There will be very big changes in at, at the firm level. And of course, without the investors, which we also covered in, in previous podcasts, without the support from investors and the driving force behind this needs to come also from investors and support the changes at the corporation level. Otherwise, owners and managers will not be aligned. Okay, Justin and Sahar, let's bring you in here now then. So you are the uh, co-leaders of the Energy and Climate um, Economic Practices at at Oxera. Um, Justin, let's start with you. Can you just set out the events that led to the recent energy crisis and and what short-term pressures this has put on the energy markets, the businesses and governments in the EU and, and potentially elsewhere as well? The energy crisis, as we're talking about here, is reflecting the the events over the last several weeks and a few months uh, now. I, I guess there have been a number of antecedents, and I think the first of which is it's important to recognize that, for example, in the case of gas, gas has been seen as a clean, reliable, and low-cost fuel for the energy transition already for, for a number of years. And together with renewable energy, gas use has increased greatly uh, for you know power generation, heating, as well as industrial uses. And this has then resulted in quite a strong dependence on gas. And meanwhile, in the last decade, there's also been kind of new sources of supply for gas that have made it more plentiful and prices have remained by and large, very competitive against other fossil fuels for particularly for power generation for some time. Now, alongside this, the gas industry as well has progressively become more flexible. And this has enabled, for example, LNG cargoes to be shipped to customers at relatively short notice. And the And this has also facilitated developments in the pricing of gas, such that it's no longer as common for the price of gas to be linked to oil prices, for example, in the context of long-term contracts, as historically was the norm. And now, increasingly, gas is priced on the basis of 
spot markets traded at key hubs around the world, for example, in the Netherlands. And so the context for the current crisis is therefore that growing gas dependence combined with supplies being tied to spot prices means that obviously markets can then become more volatile when shocks occur. And particularly when the the margin of spare production capacity over peak demand tightens considerably, as has been the case in Europe, where, for example, European production, so production of gas by European companies in European countries has decreased over time, particularly in the UK and the Netherlands and also to some extent in Norway as well. And these, of course, are large suppliers of, uh, of gas to Europe more generally. And so I think This situation combined with a number of shocks that we've seen recently gives rise to the current crisis. We've had, for example, in Europe uh, this year, we've had actually less renewable electricity generation, for example, notably lower wind generation in Europe. But there have also been reductions in renewable and hydro electricity generation, for example, in some of the major economies around the world that are also have a high degree of gas dependence. And these changes to the possibly driven by changes to the climate, we might expect there to be continuing risks to renewable electricity generation in the future. At the same time, we've also experienced in in the last several months, high gas prices in Asia due to growing demand in those countries, in particular places like China. And that has then spilled over into higher liquefied natural gas import prices in Europe. This combined with quite steady and uh, sharp increases in carbon prices recently uh, due to changes in, for example, European policies directed at sort of increasing the incentive to transition to greener technologies. These policies have raised the, uh, raised prices for, for carbon or emission allowances alongside wider changes in prices around gas and, and so forth. This has meant that there has been also some increasing switching from gas to coal-fired power generation, which then increases the demand for those allowances and contributes also somewhat to increasing carbon prices as well. And then in terms of the what this all means in terms of impacts, well, I think the impacts have been quite dramatic. So as has been reported in the media and, and in, in many places, in many countries, for example, European spot gas prices have risen around six times or more from the record lows seen around mid-2020 during the worst of the COVID pandemic. And prices this winter are now several times higher than they have been in past years, for gas, that is. And alongside this, electricity prices have also increased substantially due to the costs of gas-fired power generation having a significant impact on the electricity price. Uh, And then, as I say, the CO2 prices have also increased due to the reforms and, and the dynamics that I mentioned earlier. So... I guess the impact of all this volatility is then seen in disruptions to supply chains in a range of industries, from agriculture to steel production in the UK, for example, where uh, they rely heavily on either gas directly or rather products or other gases derived from processing activities, or, for example, to other industries that otherwise rely on electricity prices remaining low in order for their operations to be economically viable. And so I guess the takeaway from all of this is that ending reliance on fossil fuels can be very challenging since it requires a high degree of policy coordination to keep supply secure and to keep prices low. And this is particularly challenging when those supply chains are global in scope and obviously requiring then coordination, not just, let's say, within a particular country or region, but also internationally. And I suppose 
The difficulty is compounded by the fact that in order to transition away from fossil fuels, it's not good enough to simply, uh, let's say, incentivize the reduction in the use of fossil fuels, but you also have to have the alternatives available. And that requires investing in new infrastructure and new supply chains, possibly for years in advance of when you are intending to end completely the reliance on fossil fuels. And those that expense in that period for that investment can sometimes be questioned when you know you already then have alternative, you know, existing reliable and low cost sources of energy. So I think these kind of coordination issues that also I think Luis and uh, and Philip were raising earlier, I think also are at the heart of the, the current crisis. So let's bring you into the podcast then. Um, do you have anything to add to what uh, Justin was just saying there? I would put the points that Yostin has, has just made in the context of the well-known uh, trilemma, as, 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 it's, as it's talked about in, in, in energy markets, of simultaneously achieving affordability, security of supply and decarbonisation. And add that while we're focusing on vulnerabilities in the supply chain and energy, as we can all see, the climate challenge is not limited to the energy sector. So if you look at it at the recent fuel crisis, for example, um, in the UK as one example which couples the transport sector and the energy sectors, this is one which I think has some, some, some interesting implications. Because let's do a thought experiment. Imagine we all had electric vehicles. Then, arguably, the mass disruption caused by the unavailability of fuels and one vulnerability in that particular supply chain could have been avoided. But you always have to be thinking, does my solution to the problem cause any other problems? And it has been discussed for a while that with wider adoption of electric vehicles, we will also be balancing similar challenges of ensuring secure supply. In this case, a different supply chain, the electricity supply chain for everyone to charge their cars while balancing affordability. And that means that we need to be prepared to invest in better digital solutions and change some behaviours. In the case of electric vehicles, for example, we need to be prepared to install better technology in our homes for smart metering, possibly for demand side management, and maybe even make individual commitments to do things like charge our cars outside of peak hours. This is the coal face of responding to climate change, that you need to have individual commitment to change behaviours. I think if I just interject there very briefly is that... Um... So electric vehicles is an excellent example. And I think this is also the case for things like railways. Depending on the country, sometimes they are already highly electrified, let's say, and running on electric power. Uh, but in other cases, they are you know, using diesel engines and these sorts of things. And I think transitioning, you know, loading up more and more demand onto the electricity sector is not a sustainable solution if you then don't have the renewable generation and otherwise have alternatives to gas fire generation for, or fossil fuel fire generation in general. So these are systems systemic, let's say, problems, um, uh, the energy crisis, uh, systemic issue for many sectors uh, in, in the economy. Sahar, just given everything we've discussed there as, as economists, what is it that makes climate policy so challenging? I mean, let's let's take it from the point that Yostin just made about the electrification of rail, for example. This is fascinating and this is the reason that it's challenging because the climate challenge is throwing up sector coupling all around. And by that, I mean that to deliver decarbonisation efficiently, you need joint investments between sectors, between technologies, between infrastructure and between different aspects of the value chain. So between energy and transport, between gas and electricity, infrastructure-based solutions and digital ones, you can't focus on any one 
technology or value chain in a silo. So take the example of green hydrogen and you want to think about green hydrogen being used to heat homes or power planes as some of the experiments that are being undertaken in Europe and around the world. This is a very topical discussion point. But then you need investment along the whole value chain. You need the power which will be used to generate the hydrogen. You need the electrolyzers. You need hydrogen pipelines which will transport it. You need homes where new boilers are installed or airports where the infrastructure for hydrogen fueling is developed. You can see how the complexities of investment along the whole value chain and investment along a whole bunch of sectors is not a problem that lends itself immediately well to the market. The market does not lend itself in the absence of centralized planning to delivering across silos in a very joined up ways. There are issues of investment. And to simplify the problem, market failure arises because the market tends to deliver when investments are profitable and consumers tend to buy when it is approximately as cheap and as convenient as the alternative solution. So the solution to market failures is then policy or regulatory intervention. And solving these issues of value chains in silos and sectors that aren't joined up, these are complex and costly with blunt instruments like taxation and subsidy. Philip, are there any trade-offs that we have to consider between environmental, economic and, and social objectives? Well, I think there are two dimensions to the trilemma which um, Saha mentioned of security of supply, environmental sustainability uh, and affordability. And you can say that at any one point in time, there are trade-offs between security of supply, for example, and uh, sustainability. You might say, well, right, we've got to get out of coal as soon as possible. But if we get out of coal as soon as possible, is there something to replace it soon? And if you everyone relies on gas, as Justin has pointed out, uh, then we've got a problem because in the short term, not only is maybe supply has increased, but demand has increased exponentially. And don't forget, we're talking about markets which are increasingly global. It's very difficult for Europe to look at its energy situation without taking into account what China and India and the US are doing. So the trade-offs at any one time between those three elements of the trilemma, and at the same time, there is a trade-off between what you could do now and what could be possible in the medium term and in the longer term. There are plenty of people who dream about net zero strategies, particularly a lot of the people who attend uh, COP meetings still dream by saying things like, well, technology will help and innovation will help us to get there. (laughs) So we can't be very detailed about what's going to happen in the short to medium term. But don't worry, the cavalry will come over the hill and instead of having uh, needing gas or coal to back up intermittent renewables, we will uh, have new battery storage facilities. We will have extensive new systems for managing electricity networks, which will avoid the need for this uh, backup, which we have always thought was necessary in the short to medium term. So that's one example. In Africa and Asia, the issue of affordability goes alongside an issue of accessibility. And uh, whereas we take it for granted that everyone has accessible sources of energy, you can't take that for granted in, in many countries still. And if they're going to meet their sustainability objectives, how can they do it in the medium to long term 
admitting that short-term is difficult, they can only do it with a lot of investment, perhaps benefiting from local installations based upon renewables compared with centralized energy systems. But there, there's a trade-off to be achieved between providing more energy to the economy and to people on the one hand, and remaining sustainable. Those are the two examples where, where it's, it's quite clear that there's a problem. And Justin and uh, Sarah mentioned the transport sector. It's obvious that if, we, if we're still going around in electric vehicles driven effectively on coal-fired electricity generation, then we have a trade-off there which is totally unsustainable. L- Luis, uh, Philip, just uh, touched on investment there. Can you talk us through kind of like the challenges that that, that brings I mean, I'm, I'm going to take a finance perspective on this um, and to, to compliment my colleagues. And 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 really, I, I'm going to start with, with the good news. The good news is, is the market is responding well to sustainable investment. And we've made a lot of progress. So if you look at, for example, some statistics from the Investment Association here in the UK, and about half of the assets and the management, which is around about 10 trillion, half of those are subject to investment processes that follow ESG guidelines. So that's, you know, that's a sort of a 2020 today probably is, is, is higher even. Or you look at the flows of funds into European sustainable funds, the sort of statistics that Morningstar produces, and, and you see over the last two to three years, a ramping up of those flows into the European uh, sustainable funds, almost twice as much as what it was between 2015 and 2018. So the market is responding well. However, there are some big challenges ahead, and they have to do with trying to align private financing initiatives with the economic characteristics of climate change challenges. And perhaps just very quickly, I'll just go through three of them. Uh, there, there are many more, but three three that are important to note at this stage. One is around the f- information disclosure. We need disclosure of information that allows good capital allocation in society. And we, we are going through quite a lot of challenges around reporting, around measurement metrics that are required in this space. There are big challenges ahead. Making good progress, but there are big challenges ahead. The second one is around pricing of risk. We are talking about tail risk. Economists... We have not been very good at really getting that pricing of risk sophisticated enough uh, to allow investors to really sort of do the capital allocation in 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 an efficient way. The third one is the role of markets. We're not talking just about the efficiency, the resilience, the liquidity of carbon markets. We're talking also about all of those things in related markets like energy markets. And only when we've got well-functioning markets, can we really reduce the costs, the volatility that Yostin was talking about earlier on in the transition for investors and, and firms? So big challenges ahead, but I do not wish to forget the, the, the positives that we, we are on a good trajectory. There are two things worth following up on that what Lewis has just said. We've had for many years now the notion of corporate social responsibility throughout the world. It's interesting how many funds, hedge funds, sovereign investment funds and others are now insisting that a company respects the ESG goals or respects at least the nationally determined goals for climate change. The pressure is on, is not always in the direction of please provide a sustainable finance. It's also sustainable uh, finance. The financial world saying to companies, get your act together, get a strategy out, 
make sure it's compliant and effective. Give us some milestones. You know, this this whole business of COP26 is about targets and milestones, and people need to be held to account. And, and curiously enough, it's not just politicians, it's CEOs. And uh, this comes back to the question to, to what uh, my colleagues have already said. There will be changes inside companies which are absolutely necessary in order to make sure that they remain sustainable in themselves because if they are not CSR compatible, if they don't listen to the financial sector, they're not going to get the money. They'll be searching for solutions which uh, can only be achieved through changing fundamentally the, the way in which they do their business. As Saha was pointing out, the emphasis on uh, looking at supply chains, finding out where things need to be adjusted in order to uh, get to a, a net zero strategy target. So there is a, a lot of alignment, let's say, by investors with, for example, ESG type goals. That is obviously very beneficial. But I think it has the, the point I think is made by or has been made recently that investors you know, they are in some sense they are they they want to protect themselves in the sense of you know they don't want to be exposed to the to risks associated with investments in certain companies or in certain assets that then are highly exposed to climate risks, for example. And there is then potentially a sort of a natural tendency of investors to sort of try and achieve, if you like, the a right kind of balance within their portfolios is is something that you know ESG obviously by having more information it will support those kinds of uh, let's say increasingly let's say green investments to the extent that they then you know help mitigate some of those risks i think the criticism is sometimes made that actually because climate change and achieving net zero is such a long-term goal that individual investors don't necessarily align themselves with those goals perfectly because the, the, the horizon over which they might be investing will be shorter, let's say, their needs for returns or whatever are considering over the next, say, five, 10 years as opposed to the next 30. But I guess, you know, one of the things that I think we're probably looking forward to in the coming decade is with, you know, a lot more kind of commitment by governments towards net zero or climate neutrality objectives and targets uh, means that the regulations and the policies needed to steer economies towards those objectives are going to have to happen much sooner than, let's say, 30 years from now. They have to already be starting to be implemented now in the next in the next five years. And I think the risks, therefore, to those companies or assets that do not align themselves with ESG, obviously, they are then potentially going to be adversely affected and their financial performance might be adversely affected by the policies that now have to be implemented in order to steer towards the, the ultimate net zero or climate neutrality goal. And, and so I think even this, not, notwithstanding the criticisms of ESG as maybe not supported by sort of strong policy action, that this might not be enough to steer a lot of investment or sufficient amounts of investment towards the right, uh, let's say, green technologies. Nevertheless, I think we're going to see probably in the next few years that a lot of these risks and a lot of those incentives will be increased, if you like, and investors will perhaps be more likely to, or, you know, increasingly likely rather, in order to um, to steer their funds, if you like, to to green technologies. I think it's it's helpful to think about where this goes, because what we're talking about is that the ESG requirements and other signals and incentives that companies respond to and that the managers and owners of these companies and the investors in these companies will respond to will mean that there is a reallocation of resources. And when you think about a reallocation of resources, it's really important to think about what that means in terms of distributional outcomes as well. So the importance of ensuring that any transition to net zero is seen as fair. And we can think about this both in terms of 
sort of micro level, as as Luis put it in the beginning, as well as the macro level when you think about it at the level of the nations and sort of national outcomes as Philip started the conversation. Because ultimately any revolution, like the move from an agrarian economy to an industrial one, and now a fossil fueled economy to a green one, creates a mass movement in the allocation of resources. It changes how and what we produce and consume. And that creates winners and losers, because in the simplest, most polarizing terms, just just for the context of the debate, green tech firms win, oil and gas firms that fail to adapt lose. That transition is challenging. The prospect of losing brings out lobbying, which is, from society's perspective, wasteful expenditure. There is de-skilling, there is movement of labour from one industry to another, and there is also tremendous uncertainty about what the optimal decarbonisation pathways are, so that that movement of resources is not always seamless and, and, and fast, it's clunky and painful. So fairness in the context of the just transition means things like if resources move so that some are de-skilled or lose livelihoods, they are helped to retrain. Those that can't afford to invest in electric vehicles or costly home upgrades are helped with the upgrades. And already at the sort of micro level of an individual economy, these are knotty problems of how to redistribute social welfare with potentially unpopular policies through taxes and subsidies. But then open it up back to the level of the global economy that that Philip was talking about in the coordination challenges. And you have the fact that there are winners and losers among countries. So do the winners compensate the losers? Will the national commitments that are entered into actually be honoured when there are all of these sort of incentives to to cheat on the national commitments and safeguard your own population at the expense of the global one? And to what extent should the wealthiest countries help the poorest? These issues become political, emotive and paramount in translating the policy intent to national implementation. And that brings it back, I think, to where Philip began this podcast, that this is why the world's population is watching reasonably anxiously and so closely the 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 discussions that will happen at COP26. Well that is a nice link actually to the next question I wanted to ask Justin actually because I just sort of bringing this back to the current energy crisis what has been the reactions to recent events and and how can those affect climate policy and the outcomes at at COP26? Well I think the um, reactions to the recent events particularly uh, in the context of the the energy crisis I think has been a certain degree of from some stakeholders to raising questions then about you know whether we're on the right track and whether the policies and and the direction of travel is is the right one. I think uh, there's obviously a degree of a huge degree of uncertainty in all of this. Uncertainty makes it difficult to plan for the future, and uh, particularly as the costs of new policies and new commitments is potentially high, and the benefits in terms of avoided costs or impacts caused by climate change are also difficult to know with with a, with a huge amount of certainty. And so, therefore, governments are you know understandably find it difficult to design policies that take the measures needed to provide greater certainty to companies and individuals whose decisions governments rely on to develop the necessary infrastructure and uh, and also to change their behavior, as uh, Sahar and, and, and Philip were also mentioning earlier. 
So I think in this kind of context, the concerns over rising energy prices naturally leads then to this uh, concern that, you know, maybe some of the policies are, this would not be the right time to implement some of these, that perhaps they should be delayed, or maybe policy should just be changed altogether just to ease the crisis. And, and I think in some cases, I think the reaction has been also to kind of consider or reconsider the underlying, the, the fundamental sort of design of the markets and the institutional frameworks that we have at the moment as well. And I think that is something that if that were to come to pass, then I think potentially then that would perhaps be counterproductive, particularly if, for example, that meant, you know, rolling back a lot of the progress that's made, been made uh, over the last uh, several years in getting to a situation where the markets are working by and large efficiently. Because I think fundamentally the energy crisis is about supply and demand and the underlying fundamentals rather than necessarily sort of a, a poor design of policy and a poor design of markets per se, in the sense that if you have supply falling and demand growing, uh, you will naturally see higher prices and higher prices, as long as those prices, arguably, as long as those prices are reflecting those underlying supply and demand conditions and providing therefore guidance on what investments should be made in the future or what behaviors would benefit uh, individuals in the future to reduce their demand or to increase supply, for example, then I think the markets are providing a, a useful signal, even if it's an uncomfortable one in the short term. So I I think really, I guess it would be counterproductive if a lot of the progress in the sort of market design area, particularly in the design of regulations and policies were to be reversed. That said, I guess in terms of one of the positive, potential positive benefits of, uh, of the current crisis, and you know, assuming for a moment that the crisis is relatively short term in nature, and also that policies can be implemented to sort of mitigate some of the effects of the higher prices on certain vulnerable customers and other uh, vulnerable users. And obviously, provided there isn't too much, let's say, adverse impact on the wider economic prospects, let's say more generally, one of the benefits of the current crisis could be that individuals and companies and governments are reminded, let's say, uh, about the need to have sensible policies and to also make sure that people are investing and taking the necessary steps in order to shield themselves from future market volatility. And I think in, if that were to be the outcome of this crisis, then I think it wouldn't have been all bad. We're going to have to bring this uh, discussion to a close, and we've covered a, a huge amount. Philip, we started with you. I'm going to come back to you to close off the conversation. Just given everything we've discussed, is there a concern that COP26 could fail in its objectives? Well, I think the first concern is that uh, COP26 should build on the ambition which is uh, displayed at previous COPs. That is to say, we've got to go even further than we've, we thought we needed to in terms of CO2 emissions reduction. And uh, therefore, every country has to contribute. They also have to mention the things which are necessary for them to reach their targets. Some of them are, are key to the achievement of the overall target. We mentioned... Uh, China's proposed commitment to withdraw from coal investments in the world. But uh, there are many other areas where countries need to give credibility to their targets by uh, outlining how they intend to reach them. We don't expect all the strategies to be laid out in COP26, but certainly countries will be wanting to bring forward those elements which are, are positive. There is a risk, which Sarah has referred to, risk associated with the extent that commitments made by individual countries are dependent, in their view, on support from other countries, richer countries. 
it may take quite a long time for countries in Africa in particular to reach the final targets without a lot of investment in the short term. And in, in many other areas, for example, as I, I think I referred to in Europe, Poland has a huge challenge in moving away from uh, coal, uh, given the fact that uh, certainly until recently more than 200,000 people are actually working in this area in Poland. It took 30 years for the European Union's other countries to withdraw from coal. Some of them, like Germany, haven't even finished that job yet. But we're expecting Poland to do it in five or ten years. These are the kind of challenges which um, obviously are of concern in reaching COP26's ambitions. But the expectation overall at the moment is that there will be more commitment and more engagement and more credibility to the strategies, the net zero strategies which were put forward. I think, as I referred to earlier, the role of technology is and innovation is, is very important. And uh, possibly some... People are more optimistic, possibly over-optimistic, that solutions will be delivered to problems where we don't have solutions at the moment. The overall policy here among countries is to say, let all flowers bloom. Technology will help through that. But there's another aspect here of winners and losers. Not all technology just will win. We don't even know whether the, the current technologies around electric cars and hydrogen will in fact be the technologies which will be used in 10 to 15 years time. So there are uncertainties in the long term and on what technologies are involved. In the short term, however, COP26 should lead to more momentum, more commitment, more engagement. Excellent. Well, uh, probably um, a good place to end this uh, episode on, on a positive note. So thanks once again to all my guests for joining us today. Um, so Sir Philip Lowe, Justin Christensen, Sahar Shamsi and Dr. Luis Carrera da Silva. Uh, don't forget, Oxera would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on the Oxera website. Just simply go to oxera.com slash insights slash agenda. Or you can comment on their LinkedIn and Twitter posts where they have shared this podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today and you're interested in finding out more about working with the Oxera team, uh, please do get in touch via the website too. For more information, just visit oxera.com slash careers. We'd also love for you to subscribe and, and uh, follow this podcast. You can do that on your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a positive rating and review. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the Oxera team um, about Agenda um, or any of the points raised here today, you can do that by emailing agenda at oxera.com. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.